Great. Okay. So we're back after lunch. So I'm going to do a little bit of a loop within a loop here, really fast. So the question was, what about the ego? And what does this brain science stuff have to do with that? And then as I was fumbling to get my tape recorder going, I got some good suggestions, right, to repeat the question and to tape it. And, and what it reminded me of is a very interesting experience I had one time where we were in small groups in this training program and we were learning about small groups. And one of the things that they did is they gave us this task, which was uh, to, uh, we were given a survival situation. Like let's say a plane has crashed in the middle of the Sahara Desert and on the plane, you know, are you and two other people and there are a dozen objects, 12 different objects, and you have to rank order the objects in importance to survival. And some of them are obvious and some of them are not obvious at all. And then your score, your, your list is compared to the list of total experts on survival, let's say. And the way the exercise worked is that you did it individually initially. And so you created your list and that, then that was set aside. And then you shared your list with everybody else in the group. And then you discussed what everybody thought would be the best possible group list. Okay? Two things were found out. One is that the, um, actually the, the main thing that was found out was that the group list was always better than the first draft of the best person's list. In other words, the group itself lifted the level of the best person. So I think that was a very humbling, and for me as a very independent kind of guy um, who knew a fair amount about survival already because uh, of my background, um, that was impressive to really appreciate, you know, that we really are profoundly social animals, as we'll talk about later, right? And we really do, it really does take a village to raise a workshop. Anyway, self. Okay. I'm going to try to control myself here. Uh, so the question here is what is the ego? Or more intimately, you know, what is the I? When you think, I want a cookie. Or that's my book. Or do you love me? That's the very intimate self here. The Buddha talked about this in two kinds of ways, and he sort of mixed together these two ideas of self. So it's, sometimes it's hard to tell what he's talking about, or it gets, there's some misunderstanding there. Um, on the one hand, he talked about the self in terms of the Atman, this idea prevalent at the time in Hindu India that there was a, a soul that did not arise due to conditions and was eternal. It was not created, it could not be destroyed, you know, it migrated from body to body, but it was like a pearl that was never compromised. And his argument, his view, was that there is no such soul. Whether he was right or wrong, in the words of the Buddha himself, ehi pasiko, see for yourself. But that was one argument. So that's where anatta came from, not atman. Okay? Got that? He also talked about the psychological self, the I, me, or mine of I want a cookie, right? Or do you love me? And he made an argument there that um, undermined the notion that there is such an I. And he also uh, pointed out the many ways in which the uh, presumption of an I, a self in this sense, uh, creates 
lots and lots of suffering and harm, in large part through the vehicles of identification and possessiveness. All right. So, okay. And this is a tricky topic, so I'm trying to work from one stone to another stone kind of carefully. So let's, let's really consider whether or not there is a soul. I'm not qualified to judge. I don't know. I tend to give the Buddha the benefit of the doubt. Secretly, I hope there's an eternal soul. <laughs> but let's set that aside metaphysically. Don't know. But the psychological self, very interesting. And you might like the last chapter in my book, which is about that, uh, where neuroscience, I think, really does contribute. Um, I wrote an essay recently called The Brain, So What? Because I think in a lot of places, brain science just muddies the waters, and people use it to glamorize themselves and sell books and stuff like that. I try not to do that. I try to think, where is it actually useful? You know, and this is an area where I think it is useful. So I'm going to do this fast, because I do a whole day long on this topic. I love this, this idea of not-self, because it's so deep and so fundamental. Really fast here. The notion in, the, in Western psychology and philosophy, and it's the ordinary notion, is that the I, the self, is the owner of experiences and the agent of actions. It's the one, one, to whom things happen. Or, or, or in more detail, the self is unified, um, enduring across time, independent, and the essence of the person. All right? First, psychologically, you can see that those four characteristics are not true. First of all, the self is made up of many parts. There's the part that sets the alarm clock at night and says, we're going to exercise. That's great. Then there's the part of the self that wakes up in the morning and, who set the darn clock? Right? You know, we have different feelings, different selves. So there are different parts of us, different sub-personalities, different aspects. It's compounded. Two, it, it uh, is not... Um, enduring. It actually keeps changing. Self or selfing, more exactly, continually changes. Which goes to the third aspect, it arises dependently. It's not independent. And finally, clearly, the sense of I, me, or mine is just part of the, it's just one more object of consciousness. It's one more object in awareness. It's not the totality of mind. I think this is where a distinction between self and person are, is very useful, which goes to the relationship practices we're about to go into. Um, because, so, we're all, there's no question that you're a person, I'm a person, and you're a different person than I am, you know? Um, we have different histories, we have different uh, moral, persons have moral duties, they also have moral rights, moral standing. Persons are existent. The question is whether the I, the me, the mine is existent, okay? Direct inspection in your own psychology is that these four characteristics of self do not exist. Self is compounded. It's not unified. Self is changing. It's not enduring. It doesn't have continuity over time. Third, self arises dependently, not independently. Fourth, self is not the essence of the being. It's just, a, it's just one more content of mind. The same thing very powerfully is found in, in neuroscience. For example, scans of the brain where people are activating different aspects of self like they're remembering something, or they're picking out a photograph of themselves from a crowd, or they're making a difficult moral choice. All kinds of parts of the brain light up. There's no special place in the brain where self is. Self is compounded in the brain. And in fact, those places in the brain 
where selfing, representations of self, arise, are not special because they do all kinds of other things. In the streaming river of consciousness, in the stream of consciousness, selfing is just one more bunch of legs and tweed, twigs and leaves. All right? It's just more flotsam and jetsam flowing through awareness. And as far as the brain is concerned, it's not special. So in the brain, again, this thing we take as the unified, enduring owner of experiences and agent of action is widely distributed throughout the whole network of the brain. Second, it's not permanent. There's no little homunculus, little person looking out through the eyes. It's um, very changeable. It's like if we were to watch the sense of self, it would be lighting up here, then lighting up there, then getting quiet, expanded in the front, quiet in the back, big in the back, small in the front. It arises dependently as well in the brain. And it's just one content in the whole system. That's quite staggering to really face the implications of that. And what you can watch in your own practice is you can watch the ways in which strong pleasure or strong pain, the vednas, the feeling tone, pleasure and pain, strong ple strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant, activate selfing. Because selfing is an adaptive function that developed in evolution to keep us alive. Right? So to see it in that way is useful. Here's the takeaway point. <clears throat> Think about a representation of a horse. All right? oh, in, the, in the brain, there are real representations of horses, right? You can think about a horse, you can imagine riding on a horse, you can think about being afraid of falling off a horse, right? Those representations are real. Presumably there's a real neural substrate that supports them, although it's unclear exactly how that happens. There's a presumption, okay? They are representations of real things, okay? I think they're real horses. I don't know about you. But I think they're real horses. I think that whether if I, if, if I died, if consciousness ended, I think there'd still be horses there. Okay. So we have real representations of a real thing. Selfing. We can represent the eye. We can think there is an eye. Okay. There can be real representations. But that which they point to is not real. In other words, representations of the eye in the brain are like representations of a unicorn. Real, distinct from representations of a horse, real representations of a mythical creature. And where this goes to practice is, for me, <clears throat> one, observing how selfing rises and falls. And how notice how many times in the day you do something with no sense of self. Reach for the salt shaker. You know, someone nods or looks at you, you just kind of nod and look at them. No conscious control, no particular sense of self. Self is absent so much of the time we don't even notice it. You know, and then something happens that very typically triggers either strong pleasant or strong unpleasant, and the self starts constellating. It starts growing in the circuitry. You can watch it over a second or two or three if you're mindful. And then it's like a little child running after the parade that has already begun that says, look what I've created, right? But it is actually an afterthought, you know, that tries to claim it. The trick about self is to let it be just one more content of mind. The problem is not that selfing arises. The problem is that we identify with it and privilege it. 
We make self-representations special among all the representations in the mind. And that's where, to bring this more into relationships, because that's now where we're really going to go, okay? Um, when we take things personally in relationships, we get upset, right? What's it like to take things personally? When, and, and nothing activates selfing like relationships. Right? You just walk down the street. You're kind of flowing and floating and, you know, there's not much sense of self. Let's say you're activating the lateral circuits, right? You're not lost in thought about yourself, okay? You're just walking down the street and then you see someone step out of a shop that you know who says hello very quickly. You just watch. The construction of self starts to develop immediately right there. See? So it's great to observe how selfing arises and, and uh, falls away. And then that really takes you again and again viscerally in your direct experience to not treating it so seriously. You know? um, I had a very, very powerful experience once which has stayed with me, which is, it was so clear to me that so much is happening you know, in the mind in awareness, let alone outside of awareness. It's just not possible for any eye, no matter how supercharged, you know, even Donald Trump's eye, right? <laughs> even the mega eye, <laughs> the mega millionaire himself, even that eye is not enough to, to control all of the stuff that's happening. Okay. All right, better move on. I, you wanted to say something about this. This gentleman had a question too. Did you? I think that's so beautifully. I never thought of that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's true. The Buddha has, so their question was, is 